Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was and always will be the land of the First Nations people. In this episode, I chat with Dr Nathaniel Swain. Today, you will find out how this once reluctant teacher has transformed into one of the country's most driven and influential educators. It is clear that he will do whatever he can to increase the educational outcomes for as many young people as possible by supporting teachers in every way that he can. This is exemplified through his research, presentations, podcast appearances, resource development, blog articles, and of course the creation of Think Forward Educators, a charity organisation set up to promote social equity using the science of learning that has over 20,000 members. This is actually the first of a two-part series with Nathaniel. In part B, you will hear from both Nathaniel and myself as we provide some live coaching to teachers from a couple of different schools. We hear about their science of learning journey and provide some targeted advice on what they could do next. However, before we get there, in this conversation, Nathaniel plays the teacher version of Dolly Doctor and addresses some of the most sought-after questions in education and provides a number of practical ready to use examples of how to implement the science of learning. So, strap yourselves in for this action-packed episode with Dr. Nathaniel Swain. I'm really excited to be speaking to Dr. Nathaniel Swain today. He's currently a senior lecturer, learning sciences and learning engagement at La Trobe University, and has also been a speech language pathologist teacher and founded Think Forward Educators. Nathaniel, I've really enjoyed getting to know you on a personal level over the last couple of years. But for those that don't know you, are you able to just tell us a bit about your journey and how you ended up in the position that you're in today? I'd love to. Thanks for having me, Brendan. It's such a pleasure to speak with you. I am originally, if you like, in my high school years, a dance teacher and a bit of a performing artist. That was my first profession that I tried my hand at. I then sort of turned to linguistics and you could call me a speechy and a language lover, but I've actually, you know, then became a turned teacher. So much to my mum's delight, particularly because she always wanted me to be a teacher. And now I've turned teacher educator at La Trobe School of Education, involved in the Solar Lab. And it's a really fun place to be in. It's a bit of a roller coaster my career so far, but it means now I've got this opportunity to work with teachers as they're learning the craft and, and learning the profession, and also to use all the great knowledge and experiences that I've had in the classroom and working with students and teachers and seeing it all come to life in a new way, which is awesome. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned how your mum's a teacher and, you know, she's kind of always wanted you to also take up, you know, teaching as well. Do you feel like that had an impact on, on your experience as an educator? I think so. And certainly in some ways it put me off going into teaching. I don't know about yourself, Brendan, but whether you had reservations because your mom's a teacher too. But I was I was of the opinion going through my own schooling that 
teaching doesn't look like a lot of fun because it's you're having to cater with so much for so much difference in the classroom. I could see how much work my mum did on the weekends and at night. It was it's a pretty it's a pretty hard slog if you're trying to do everything for yourself. And I think my mum's probably of the generation where there wasn't a lot of shared planning. There wasn't a lot of collaborative sort of work with people. And it was all the the teacher sort of driving everything. And there's benefits to that, but there's also the burnout that comes along with it as well. So in some ways it put me off, but then in other ways, once I did give in to that, that desire to be in the classroom, it, it reminded me of all the fun that I had as a dance teacher originally back in my high school and, and early uni days. And the fact that there is something so magical that you have in that interaction with students in real time and getting to know them over a long period of time. I think it's nothing quite like feeling that success and helping your students to feel that success with learning and whatever that might be, whether it's reading, writing, maths, or even dance. Yeah. You know, I think where I'm I'm probably similar to you is that I didn't jump straight into teaching. Mm. You know, I was probably more of a, you know, like yourself, a bit reluctant, not so much because I didn't want to do what my mum was doing, but more because <laughs> I just, I didn't think that it was for me, you know what I mean? And and then I, I kind of fell into it. I was, I was originally a personal trainer and then I started doing some like PE stuff with primary students. Mm. And then I was like, oh, I could probably do this. You know, I do enjoy it. And I think like one of the things that you get from kids and, you know, all, all your students from primary up to high school is, is firstly like the innocence. And then also just the enthusiasm for life, you know. Yeah, and, it is pretty um, inspiring, isn't it? It it's, is, yeah. yeah. Like, you know, you don't get that anywhere else, really. A, a lot of the times we kind of, we're stressed or, you know, we're we're just dealing with the day-to-day things. But, you know, just that, I guess, the the wonder of what, what you might achieve in your life. Mm. I think that's one of the, the magical things of being a teacher. It can become like almost like a Zen sort of time where, you know, nothing else matters in that moment except you and those students and what they're learning. And you can really, yeah, you find yourself when it all works well and when it is all gelling, it's, there's nothing quite like it. It's, it's quite, you know, not to be superstitious, but it is a bit magical in terms of seeing, seeing the light bulbs go off for kids and, and seeing their joy in learning something that for us is quite ordinary and, and, and potentially pedestrian, but for them might be, you know, the first time they've cracked the code or the first time that they've made a connection between completely new concept from something to something else, or the first time they've been able to independently solve a maths problem by themselves. Like it is, it is awesome. And so that's why kids remember their teachers. Hey. Yeah. You know, and how, how do you think you kind of fell in love with language? So I originally found my, my favorite subject in school was Japanese. I yeah. really got into that. I, I did extension programs for it. I did an exchange in Japan. I, I thought that that was going to be my sort of career path, like maybe an interpreter or a translator. And I studied at a university and very soon I saw the limitations of my own short-term and long-term memory. I could not memorize the kanji. So there's the the alphabetic system that's sort of ideographs. So based on particular pictures. And there's tens of thousands of them in Japanese. And I had to memorize at least 50 a week. And then by the end of the subject, there was a lot that I had to sort of recall. And I I just wasn't doing very well. I I did not have the the awareness of how the brain learns to be able to train myself properly in that. But potentially I'd missed a critical period where I could actually make all the space that I needed to memorize that stuff. So Japanese was like, okay, that's hurting my average. At school, I was pretty motivated. 
um, to get high marks and at university it was no different. So I said, well, I need to think of something else. And at the same time, I had already started linguistics because Japanese had opened up my interest in language and had made me reflect on my own experience of English because in English you never really learnt about grammar because of the movements of the 90s and things like that where grammar wasn't taught explicitly anymore. But in Japanese, we were taught grammar. So there was an opportunity for me to be like, oh, this is a thing that you can actually study. So luckily at uni, I did Japanese and linguistics to begin with. I then dropped Japanese and went really hard into linguistics. And that's how I ended up in speech pathology. That was an opportunity to apply all that knowledge about language and speech and everything like that. And then teaching followed logically after that when I started working with kids and realizing how important the role of the teacher is. So it all came back full circle, just like mum said it would. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're, they're pretty wise, aren't they? And so when, you, when you're looking at you know, speech pathologists, so many of them have had a big impact on you know, the science of reading movement that we're seeing. Mm. Um, what do you think the reason behind that is? And, and, you know, is there something that we can learn in education from that? I think is a, there's probably two things there. I think speech pathologists are given access to the kind of knowledge that would really benefit teachers. So they get access to information about development, about linguistics, about the speech system, so the phonology and the sounds and how they map onto letters. They get information about evidence-based practice and the importance of effective intervention approaches. And in fact, it's a sort of an ethical requirement that we only use ethical, sorry, evidence-based approaches in, in a, a field like speech pathology, the same as psychology and other allied health professions. So I think that's the orientation that a lot of speeches come from is that why would you teach any other way? Because you have to do it according to the evidence or else it's a bit unethical. But, you know, some speeches don't probably have as much of a grounding in that. They, they might be much more focused on speech difficulties or they might be yeah. more focused on stuttering or swallowing or voice. There's a lot of other things that speeches do. Yeah. So while speeches could be seen as like a bit of a, I know, someone who could really contribute, there's other, there's, there's other aspects to becoming a great teacher of reading and a teacher of literacy that speeches obviously don't have. And it is a bit hit and miss. Some speeches just specialize in it because they love it. And they happen to do a lot of learning after their degrees as well to sort of upskill the same way that teachers do. So it's not a, it's a, not a one-to-one sort of correspondence between species equals literacy expert, but there is certainly an increased likelihood that some speech pathologists will have that background. And I was lucky in my own career that I began working once I graduated from speech pathology, working with a lot of kids with literacy difficulties. And that's what I was most interested in. And that's where I headed. And then it became a broader conversation about, well, how do you help them when you're first teaching them how to read and write? Because there's all of these challenges that are happening because of some ineffective teaching methods. And that what that's what motivated me eventually to, you know, halfway through the first decade of my career to go back and retrain and to be like, I need to rethink my whole career essentially. And that's what I've ended up doing. Yeah. And so was there like a, a certain point which made you do that? I think I experienced what a lot of people experienced when they're trying to implement the science of reading in their schools. They are sometimes stymied by leadership and their understanding of why it's so important. So I think I was frustrated that as a specialist on the side, there was only so much I could contribute to those conversations. When people didn't like the things that I was talking about, they sometimes would shut me out of the conversation and be like, well, you wouldn't know because you haven't taught a class before or you haven't, you know, I would think yeah. oh, I'm a, you know, I'm a dance teacher by background, like give me the class, I'll give it a go. But I didn't have the <laughs> certification in order yeah. to go and do that. So in some ways I had been speaking to my wife for a few years being like, oh, you know what? I probably should go back and do a teaching degree. I think I'd really like it. And those conversations of being like, well, that's not going to fly or you wouldn't know just really challenged me and was like, I, I think I reckon I'd be good at that. And so I yeah. went back and did it and nothing was better because I, I got a much 
richer picture of, of how teachers are trained and that that you know all the things that that teachers get in their degree there are some really good things in there that I wasn't aware of before I then retrained so we are a, a really fantastic profession unfortunately I didn't learn that much about literacy when I was doing that degree so and I didn't learn much about effective instruction but there were other things that I think it have helped me to set up in the, the the space that I have yeah and so once you entered the classroom, what was something that really surprised you that you, you weren't really expecting? Oh, good question. I think it's quite in, like it's in, it's an intense profession. It's a really intense job. I think other professions probably don't quite get how intense it is. I think we all know as teachers that it's like a nonstop sort of attack on your on your focus. Um, so you j- just when you're in the middle of doing something and you're about to press go and start teaching, suddenly the phone goes off and it's someone who needs to come from the office. You know, there's an announcement that goes over just as you're in the middle of something explaining something. There's four people away today because of some gastro outbreak. There's five kids that you need to follow up with at recess because of an issue that happened at lunch. Like, you know, all those little things that sort of add up to your attention and then let alone thinking about instructional decisions and saying like, oh, this student's really struggling with this. Like, how do I help him? Or is this this intervention working for him or do I need to go further to help her or whatever it might be? So it's it's a really taxing job. And I think that's why it makes a lot of sense for us to think strategically about how we use our time. And if we're recreating materials from scratch every year and, and reinventing the wheel potentially, I think there's other things that we could be spending our time on, such as that, you know, the quality time with students and understanding their learning and also catering for particular learning needs in the classroom rather than being like, what am I going to teach tomorrow? Because that question is something you shouldn't have to answer on a daily basis. I think there should be a wider, longer term plan that you can stick to so that day by day, you can focus on that nitty gritty and get really into it. Yeah, you know, you, you speak about how intense teaching is and, and how much attention you've got to pay mm. uh, you know, to, the, to those students in front of you. And then one of the, the tricky things is, and you touched on it there, is that, you know, we're expected to be curriculum designers, mm. you know, learning designers, and then throw on top of that, we've got to be responsive to what's happening in front of us. You know, if we can, as a system, you know, start to take away some of those roles and responsibilities, you know, it'll just allow teachers to focus on, you know, what matters then and there. And, mm. and I think it'll, it'll allow them to be a lot more engaged with what's happening. You know, mm. I think like part of the frustration for teachers is that they know what they should be doing. They know what they want to be doing, but they just don't have the mental capacity to do it a lot of the times. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's it's easy to go back to your old habits or the things that you're used to doing because you can't think of everything all at once. And when you're struggling for time or struggling for mental space, you're going to fall back to things, which is why people find it hard to implement new approaches because it's a lot of new thinking that you might not have the space for because of X, Y, and Z other issues that you're grappling with. Yeah. And, and look, you know, today we're going to talk a lot about a lot of things which might go against what people have thought about in the past, you know, when it comes to effective education. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just want to kind of set the scene a little bit by asking you to, to firstly reflect back on, is there something that you've changed your mind about you know, in terms of education, you know, throughout your your varied career, what's one thing that you've changed your mind about? I think I used to think about the learning process as being something that needed to be really tailored and individualized. I think, you know, when you come from a background of trying to understand what someone's learning profile is and really focusing on assessment for diagnostic purposes, you sort of think, oh, if the teacher just knew how to use this strategy that would work for this particular student, then that kid would be fine. What I've really changed in my view is that there are certain 
pedagogical and teaching approaches that just work for nearly everyone. And that yeah. if you do them really well, and if you do them in combination with a, a repertoire of things that, that hang together as a definition of good teaching, things like, you know, guided practice, things like the bulletproof definitions and explanations, step-by-step processes, things like checking for understanding and using that information in real time, things like daily review and reflections at the end of each lesson. I think if you do those things really well and you've got the pedagogical content knowledge to match, there's less of a need to say, I'm going to teach each child differently and I'm going to think differently about every child's learning trajectory because it's probably not possible to create something that's individualized. Like we could educate kids one-on-one and have one one teacher per student and it would probably be more effective but it, it's just not possible and not feasible and there are benefits for students actually learning together even if there are differences in how they're going having them together as a cohort and helping them to work together well as a unit there's all the social and intellectual benefits of hearing other people's perspectives and and learning about how other people see things and and what they might have difficulty with when you might find maths easy where someone else finds english easy or or pe or whatever it might be so i think the the me the ends justify the means to say well it's important to make whole class instruction work because it's the most sensible thing in terms of resources but also because you can do great approaches that actually do work work really well for most kids if you have an rti approach where you've got t1 solid instruction then the the further support and the further individualization can happen at that tier two and tier three level i think that's a really smart way to use your resources but it's also a more enjoyable way for kids to engage in learning i think too much small group instruction can sometimes mean that there's very little quality time with the teacher i think that's a big problem yeah, you, you made some really good points here. And I, I think like one of the things when you do start to look at, you know, what sorts of teaching practice uh, intervention organisations will usually recommend, they're always going for, you know, those really explicit instruction type methods. And, and you've got like heaps of those scaffolds and guided practice. Mm. And then when you actually start to look at the evidence behind like, you know, what works for whole class instruction, it's the same thing. Mm, and yeah, right. I, I do find that funny when sometimes you'll go to schools who have a really solid intervention program, but mm. then their tier one teaching, their whole class teaching is not in line with, with that at all. Yeah. And I guess it's the of the opinion that only some kids need that level of instructional intervention. So they save the really effective approaches for them. But it's almost by then it's too late because sometimes, as you said, the tier one actually conflicts and it's and teaching them something different. Like in the teaching of reading, they might be teaching them according to a balanced literacy view in the classroom, but then in intervention, they're doing an evidence-based program. And those kids have to unlearn strategies of how to figure out words when they bounce from one kind of instruction to the other so there's a real challenge there if there's not an alignment and a harmonization between approaches from one tier to the next yeah exactly yeah i'll get asked that question all the time about you know like what would, what should we be doing for intervention and i'll be like well, what are you guys doing for whole class instruction first let's get That's that right point yeah yeah because a lot of those students in that tier two group a lot of the times they don't actually need to be there it's just that they're being left behind because of what's happening in that whole class instruction Mm, yeah definitely all right so i thought today it'd be good to address a lot of those frequently asked questions that, Mm. that we come across you know so i was I was scouring, you know, Facebook and Twitter and looking at the social media and and you and I have done a couple of webinars in the past and I was looking Mm. at some of those questions. So I've put together a a bit of a list and and so I thought we'd we'd approach it like a bit of a a Dolly Doctor type thing. Yeah, cool. No worries. So I'm going to start each one with Dr. Swain, okay? 
<laughs> Sounds so, good. Dear Dr. Swain, there is a view at my school that what we are currently doing is working. So why do we need to change? All right. So I would ask the question to you, who is it working for and what measure are you using? When you say it's working, what does that actually mean? Because in every school, apart from a, a few that are doing incredible work and are very aware of what's working and what's not working, I think there's space for us to better support, especially the lowest performing students and also extending the highest performing students as well. I think questioning what work, what does working mean is is really important. I could say that my own education worked really well. Um, I've done, you know, I've been able to get a stupid number of degrees from the, the high school education that I received and the primary school education. But on reflection, I would have loved to have more explicit and more review-driven maths instruction. I would have loved to have mastered arithmetic and mm. maths facts to be much more fluent because towards the end of my maths career, which was year 11, mum who was my maths teacher in year 11 and was going to be the maths teacher in year 12, she was really disappointed because I didn't want to do maths in year 12 because it was going to affect my interscore. I was like, this is going to hurt me because I do not understand what we're doing anymore. And yes, it was conceptual stuff I didn't understand, but I probably didn't understand the concepts because I was too slow doing the maths behind it. I stopped understanding what it was about because I was struggling to do the tasks and to, to follow through with the procedures. So, you know, I did well in, in maths. I did well enough. I've been able to do stats and things in my own research. But if I'd had a stronger, more explicit focus on maths that, that allowed me to get to more mastery, I think that would have been better. So, yeah, that for most schools, um, things might be working well or well enough. But how could they be improved further? And particularly for those students who are struggling, how they could be improved? Because yes, on average, you might be doing well. Victoria, for instance, is doing very well in terms of NAPLANS, the best in the state. But if you've gone to lots of Victorian schools like I have, you'll know that in every single school, there is a pretty large proportion of kids who are more likely to be at risk for other reasons and, and potentially historically marginalized groups as well, who are not doing very well. And they're not doing well potentially because they haven't got the protective factors that other kids have, such as teachers, you know, parents at home that act like teachers in the first yeah. instance, or they give them rich learning experiences or pay for tutors when they're struggling. So I think schools who are doing well sometimes take credit for things that maybe not be a part of their instruction. So although that's a bit of a controversial answer, I think it's really important to think what, is, what does it mean to be working well and who's it working well for? Yeah. And, and so I guess one of the responses you might get from, you know, say school leaders or people who are reluctant to make those changes is, is they might say, well, all of our students are improving in their reading levels. Mm. And so I'd say, what what do they come in with? How big has the growth been? Is it is it more than the chronological year worth of growth? And are you using dodgy data to measure that? Because you know most assessments in most schools for reading are not based on an evidence based sort of way of thinking about reading. So reading levels in in and of themselves probably don't actually exist. They're much much more like horoscopes, as I like to say. So if you're a level B or a level D, you're much more likely to be, it's, it's a better comparison than a number is probably more like a Gemini or a Taurus. So, you know, using a quality assessment measures that actually say whether students are improving or not, things that are more curriculum-based measures like easy CBM or Diables and things like that, like the Acadians platform, I think that would give you a better insight into whether growth is actually happening or whether you've got stagnation. Yeah, great advice. All right, next one. Dear Dr. Swain, I'm a kindergarten foundation prep teacher, whatever you call yourself in, in your, your state, and have been learning about the science of reading. What should I implement first? So to 
to be able to just choose a small list, I'm going to go hard with certain things. I think get phonemic awareness and not necessarily phonological phonemic awareness first, get that done. Well, you only have to spend three or four minutes on that a day. If you set up a good routine for that. So go hard and go consistently every single day on the segmenting, blending, manipulation of individual sounds. Do that within the phonics lesson, but also do that individually as a bit of a warm up. We start every day like that at my previous school at Brandon Park and works a treat. Go hard with the phonics stuff. So get them used to the sound letter patterns, such as like the graphemes, give them lots of opportunities to master that, not just when they're reading, but also just memorize those graphemes. Just do flashcards with them, you know, in Spalding or in forms they call it like a code review. Just get those sound letter patterns into the brains of kids so that when they see that SH, they think shh. When they see the EA, they think E or E or A, which all they, they say all of those things. So I think go really hard with that. The other um, non-negotiables to get you started with a science of reading journey is getting handwriting right. 10 minutes a day of handwriting done really explicitly, really consistently. You can do like a fortnightly cycle like Shane Pearson's got in the forms program as an example that you could implement. Really simple. And the benefit is kids writing in the right proportions, on the lines, you know, with dotted thirds consistently, not making up their own strokes and things like that. It means that when students begin to write sentences, they've got a, a command of those letters and they can think of them more automatically. So really easy wins there. And then the spelling and word reading stuff is really important. So get them reading and spelling individual words and then sentences, sentence dictation. Um, and all of that will add up to a really strong start to your science of reading journey. It is only the start because obviously the science of reading is not just about those foundational skills, but if you don't have those foundations right, you can't really go much further. Yeah, you know, some great tips there again. With the handwriting, is it mm. okay to do your handwriting on, on mini whiteboards or, or do we want them writing on paper? I think initially, like, it's always nice when you're first introducing it, do a little bit of mini whiteboard stuff. It's a nice way for students to gain confidence and to feel like they've got an opportunity to make mistakes because they can just rub it out. You can always use mini whiteboards as well for a lot of your spelling and your checking for understanding work on, on like the guided practice part of the lesson. But Always, you need to get them on paper. You need to get them using not textures, using gray leads because the pencil grip is really important. If you do that right in foundation, you can set them up for a pencil grip that's going to serve them well all throughout their life. In year three, one of my teachers got me to change from, it was like a four finger pincer that I had to a three finger pincer. And lucky for that, because otherwise that, that would not have sustained me throughout my year 11, year 12 first year uni exams because the amount of writing that you have to do in, in those situations and the fluency that you need really does require a strong and effective and also relaxed pincer grip. So just get that right. And, you know, explicit instruction, monitoring progress, making sure they don't revert back, reinforcing at home, really, really important. You, you mentioned forms there. For those that aren't aware of what it is, and, and look, I will speak to Shane another time. But He'd love uh, to be you, on, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Can you just give a, a brief overview of like what forms is? Yeah, and it'll come up a few times in the, with the questions that we've got for today. So forms is a free word reading and spelling curriculum that my colleague Shane Pearson has put together for free. And it's based on years of sort of testing and implementing word reading and spelling in schools. And he... It stands for phonology, orthography, morphology, etymology, and semantics. So forms with a PH. And I, at the moment, I can say hand on heart, I wouldn't teach word reading and spelling any other way. I think yeah. there are lots of paid phonics programs out there. I think they're all fantastic. And, you know, the, the ones that are commonly used in Australia 
from schools that are looking at the science of reading, I think they're going to put you in good stead. But if you're a school and you're starting out and you need something quick and you need something now and you don't have resources or you want to experiment just in your classroom, this resource is a really good starting point. And it takes you all the way from foundation to year six. Yeah, that's great. And I'll, I'll put the, the link in the show notes as well. Yeah. All right. So looking at the next one, D. Dr. Swain, <laughs> how do you show a knowledge-rich curriculum is linked to the English-Australian curriculum so we get this one a lot the trouble with this and people would have heard me talk about this before and and my colleague reed smith and lots of people in the uk are talking about knowledge curriculum as well as the natalie wexler and Edie hirsch sort of devotees in in america so it's a big conversation but essentially the problem with our australian curriculum is when you're looking at history and geography particularly some to some extent science it, it's based on an expanding horizons view where little kids can only talk about little ideas and big kids can talk about big ideas. And it's basically the, the way I can explain it quickly is that kids in the early years basically do a whole lot of topics about their immediate environment. So the home and the school. Then in year one, they might look at the local suburb. Year two, they might look at, at the town or the city. Year three, they'll look at the states. Year four, they'll look at Australia and then so on and so forth until you get to Australia's neighbours and then the world. The problem with that approach is that sometimes bigger ideas like the number of continents and where Australia is on a world map is actually easier to explain to little kids than little ideas. There's more complexity on your own street and all the things that are potentially going on there than there is in talking about the fact that we have seven continents and the fact that Australia has you know a certain number of states and territories and, and that sort of thing. So... I think it's a bit of a falsehood of, of how our curriculum has been set up. And that's, you know, something that we should push back against in some ways. And in, us in academia have the ability to try and do that. So there's a case that's probably going to be made that it's it's an area that could, could potentially change. So how do you link it to the knowledge curriculum then? The idea is that if you do a knowledge rich curriculum, you teach students facts and information and concepts that are linked together in really meaningful ways. So instead of teaching them like, I'm going to do a theme on, bravery and we're going to look at a whole lot of texts that are about bravery in some way and it's going to tick off these literature outcomes and a little bit of civics and so on and so forth rather than doing that teach a knowledge rich unit that's about the you know how rivers work for instance so that like a whole unit on rivers and everything you need to know about rivers and there's great resources out there like the core knowledge foundation that give you ways of talking about it in a student-friendly way that also do these magical links to um, history, but also to civics, also to science, as well as geography, which is the main unit. So when you're looking at units like that, just remember that there is something about rivers somewhere in the curriculum. The art of making this work is that you find the relevant geography concept or ge geography skill and map it back to the unit. So I always start with the place of what's the knowledge that you want students to have and what do you want them reading texts about and writing texts about, and then go searching in the curriculum to find it. Because the reality is, as, as things currently stand, the Australian curriculum is so broad the teachers could do you know millions of different things with it the best thing about knowledge rich curriculum is that it gives teachers a structure that is much more likely to stick in students brains you know the, the unit on bravery from year three is probably pretty forgettable but some of the facts and fascinating examples of rivers that they might learn in that rivers unit will stick with some students for their whole life because students actually really love stories and and the facts that make up those stories so it's a bit of a game, but there are some resources available, such as in the Read to Learn project, which is something that Shane Pearson and I are, are leading, working with a whole lot of other schools. And, and Brendan, you've contributed to some of those units. We're looking at things like core knowledge. We're looking at the Australian curriculum and trying to get it all to work together.
So there's a there's a curriculum map that originally was developed at Docklands Primary that's available through the Read to Learn project. You could always email me about it to, to hear more. And when things become a little bit more trialed and ready, there's going to be more curriculum resources that support that, showing explicitly where the links are to the Australian curriculum. Yeah. And so how have you found the experience of, of developing that Read to Learn project? I think what's been brilliant and what we've heard from a lot of schools is that it's taken some of the genericism of teaching reading out. So instead of being like, okay, everyone, we're doing two weeks on summarizing, let's find a text that is easy to summarize so that we can teach that skill. Instead, what we've found is that kids are coming to school every day, learning fascinating topics and learning fascinating stories about people. And so we've got kids who are particularly, who are particularly reluctant, who are then saying, I didn't realize that reading could be about this. And suddenly, you know, really, really engaged in what they're learning. They're still practicing, practicing summarizing. They're still practicing how to predict. They're doing finding the main idea. They're doing a whole lot of writing tasks based on those knowledge and literature units. But there's actually a richness to the discussions because they're learning about real stuff. And there's continuity from one lesson to another rather than the topic and the text changing lesson by lesson with just the strategy staying the same. Yeah, and look, you're starting to touch on my, my next question here or my next mm. point. So I'll go on to the next one. So dear Dr. Swain, for year three to six teachers, what sorts of things should be included in a literacy unit? So here, are we talking about fiction or nonfiction? Are we talking reading or writing, both? Well, yeah, and that's why I kind of left it open to see, right. yeah, what, what you know, how you would interpret the question and yeah. what what you would kind of recommend as well. So obviously we need to get students reading and writing a range of fiction and nonfiction texts. We also need them to practice analyzing and comprehending and grappling with text. So the comprehension and reading side of things, but we also need to get them writing different kinds of texts and responding through written expression as well. So I think here in this question, I'm assuming that we're not talking necessarily about foundational reading skills. So I'm going to leave things like spelling and handwriting, phonics, vocabulary to some extent behind in terms of explicit vocab so instead what i guess what you do is like think about what are the big ideas and the big things from the curriculum such as in a knowledge rich non-fiction sort of unit that you could teach them or on the literature side of things what are some great short texts or longer texts like novels that you can use to drive your unit so you might do a unit on a particular text i've seen a fantastic one put together on classic texts like treasure island brendan you've put one together for the velveteen rabbit you can do this with contemporary texts as well i've seen great work done with like books like storm boy but essentially Choose a text if you're doing a, a reading comprehension one then for li literature, choose a text that's really rich, decide what you want students to get out of it, and then basically in uh, create different experiences on a daily basis where they can read and understand and discuss the text, but then also do lots of responses to it as well. So linking what they're reading about to knowledge of that era or of that period or of that topic and sort of build those into so knowledge building. And, and with that is going to come vocabulary building as well. And then also give them lots of opportunities to then write about what they're reading to write in the same style as the author, to write creatively based on something that else that sparks their, their imagination. So you want the writing to actually almost sit alongside, but also have a, a focus in and of itself so that they're developing those abilities in, in sentence structure, in, in paragraph and, and text structure as well. Because I think that can be really hard to handle both at the same time. Like, okay, everyone, we're, we're reading Treasure Island, but now I'm getting you to focus on sentence level work that you've never done before. Like having those in the same lesson can be a bit jolting for some students. So I think having a place where you teach writing 
in as a thing by itself for a, a short amount of instruction and then integrating it back into a reading slash writing session, I think makes a lot of sense. So I don't know if that's a clear answer, but there's certainly a lot of things to think about. And it's, it's about making the experience cohesive and coherent for the student so that when they've finished the unit, they say, okay, I've learned something new about a particular text or about a particular topic, and I can read and write similar texts now as a result. Yeah, I, I want to dig into a couple of those things. That you mm, said sure. There. First thing, you know, I think like one of the key differences that you, you, you're talking about there is that, you know, traditionally we've kind of looked at reading and writing as two separate things. Mm. And and so, you know, we'll be planning a writing unit around, you know, like persuasive writing yeah. or, or, you know, narrative or whatever it is. And and then we'll be reading about something separate or, it, you yeah. know, it might be kind of changing from week to week as well. And so what you're kind of, suggesting here is that we we marry them up a bit more but we still have a bit of explicit teaching on the side for different areas as well so like what sorts of things do we want to be focusing on you know explicitly and what other things are, are easier to kind of link up so I think having alongside the sort of text-based, topic-based work, so nonfiction and fiction work, which it should all sort of come together in some way, the reading and the writing, I think having some aspects of the language analysis sort of stuff and the, the link to things like persuasive techniques and persuasive writing, I think makes sense to, you know, you don't have to integrate all of that within a particular text. I think it's hard to make that work really well, like make that the focus and get, give them a chance to get their head around it. Techniques from the writing revolution can be really helpful for that, for structuring arguments and, and creating paragraphs and things like that. Also having an opportunity for students even in three to six, to master the sentence and to master the paragraph and to do that with familiar content and then content that they've been learning about. So not being afraid to teach them in simple content first so that there's an opportunity for them to get some sort of mastery over that sentence strategy or the paragraph strategy. I think then like when it becomes sort of more integrated is when you think, well, we're using this text as a way to practice and to develop our ability to analyze and comprehend text, but we're also going to take the knowledge that we've got from it and do something with it. And that's the written expression side of things or the class discussion or oral presentations or inquiry sort of projects that flow out of it. So I think where we get into the trap is that we think reading is about practicing strategies and writing is about imitating different genres. I think that's the like... (laughs) The, the the sort of simple version of what some schools are sort of made made their modus operandi so i think to get out of that pattern you've got to separate and i've, I've done this in some of my talks before where i talk about things that should be contextualized and things that shouldn't be contextualized so i've got like a little hourglass model which is sort of flipping this conversation around so the things that should be contextualized are the things that are really meaningful that relate to broader topics and content things like literature and knowledge-rich curriculum should really be contextualized and comprehension strategies should be embedded in there but things that should be more explicit are making sure they've got the fundamentals of reading and writing and spelling but also things like sentence and paragraph level writing skills and some aspects of vocabulary as well so that they've got an opportunity to to understand morphology and how to learn new words based on their structure and things like that. But it it is a process of of feeding back in. I think what helps teachers to navigate this murky sort of space where it's not just like, you know, simple, I'm teaching phonics, I'm teaching phonemic awareness, which in many ways is not simple, but is constrained. So you can master that, you know, if you've got the right supports around you. The murkiness of reading comprehension and written expression comes because the meaning and the 
like where the focus is in the lesson can actually shift quite a bit. So you've got to try and make a cohesive experience for the student and for you as the teacher and know that there's going to be unintentional sort of embedded learning that happens along the way. You can't, you know, when you're building someone's language skills, you can't plan out every single thing that they're going to learn. They're going to pick up certain things. They're going to retain certain things. They're going to forget certain things, which is why those shared reading and writing experiences are really helpful. This is now the 20th episode of the Knowledge for Teachers podcast, and I can't believe that it's had almost 40,000 listens. I've really enjoyed sharing the conversations that I've had with all of my amazing guests. A couple of stories that have sparked a lot of interest were the ones on Marsden Road Public School and the Catalyst series. If you haven't listened to those, I highly recommend them. I would love to provide you with more examples of what successful schools and systems are doing, but at the moment, this is all a labor of love. As supportive as my wife is, I'm not sure how much more she will put up with me taking time off work to visit schools. So, for the price of a cup of coffee each month, you can support the work that I'm doing and help me provide more in-depth case studies and ensure its sustainability. I would be truly grateful if you went to patreon.com slash knowledge for teachers podcast. Patrons will also get access to exclusive episodes, my key takeaways from each episode, and much more. For larger organisations that are interested in sponsoring the Knowledge for Teachers podcast, send me an email at brendan at learnwithlee.net. So now, back to my conversation with Dr. Nathaniel Swain. So when we're looking at, you know, writing at that sentence level and mm-hmm. writing at the paragraph level, what are some, you know, activities that kind of really get into that, that lesson level? What are some activities that teachers can be doing? And so as you're saying for reading and for writing that? For writing, let's for writing, writing in particular, yeah. yeah. So, in order to get the fundamentals, I think looking at a scope and sequence, like has been developed by William Van Cleve's work in Writing Matters, or like a Writing Revolution has put stuff together. There's also the Syntax Project in in WA with Stephanie Lavia. I think that work to try and sequence simple sentence strategies before complex ones, and then paragraphs um, before texts. I think is really key. Giving students an opportunity to master things like, you know, how to combine sentences together or how to expand sentences that are quite boring or simple, how to incorporate things like appositives or relative clauses so they can expand on what the noun sort of is about. So you can say, Brendan, um, a learned educator, was hosting a podcast. So that a learned educator gives more information in a much better way than, say, creating a separate sentence. Because I could have said, Brendan is hosting a podcast, he is a learned educator. But you can see how it, it creates a much more clunky sort of way of talking or writing in that case. So that sentence level work in those scope and sequence sort of documents that are available to us now, I think can be really powerful. It's it, it's it, Writing isn't a naturally acquired skill. I think it's really important to see that writing can be really overwhelming for a lot of our students. Some kids pick it up by themselves. I can say hand on heart that I didn't probably receive a lot of writing instruction and I modeled my way through. But for some kids, that writing instruction is pretty key. And it's not just about drilling grammar because grammar has to be contextualized. It's one of those things that you can't just teach by itself. You want to embed it in student writing. But it is about knowing that mastering the sentence and mastering the paragraph is really key in order to give students the skills they need when they're approaching those you know, rich units of, of literature or nonfiction texts. Yeah, look, I, th- I think it's one of those areas where a lot of teachers will put their hand up and say, I actually don't have the, the knowledge that I want to have to teach writing effectively, mm. you know, and so they're probably suffering a little bit from like the curse of knowledge where, you know, yeah. they've 
they forget how they actually learnt to write. And then on top of that, you know, they probably weren't given, you know, explicit instruction into how to actually teach writing as well, mm. at, you know, throughout their initial teacher education. And so I think that's why a lot of the times we end up with teachers just saying, all right, write about what you've done on the weekend or, or yeah. write, a, write a short story and because they don't actually know themselves what sorts of things they need to be doing to break down sentences and to break down paragraphs you know so hopefully this can be an area where we do start to see a, a lot more professional learning being provided and, mm. and you know people like yourself you know fixing it from the start well yeah and it's exactly and there is a huge body of knowledge that you can use as a teacher to inform how you think about writing and a lot of it comes down to the structure of language and linguistics and if you understand some of that structure and, and know how the word level integrates with the phrase level integrates with the sentence with the paragraph and the text then suddenly you've got a way of, of breaking things down. And, you know, what's beautiful about the Hockman method, which is Judith Hockman's writing revolution, is that she's in a similar way to Shane Pearson in some ways with the spelling stuff in terms of testing it and trialing it out. She's developed this method over many years by testing it and, and working with students, especially those who struggle with writing, and essentially created a, a way of thinking about the sequence so that certain things build upon one another. So you master certain sentence level strategies before you then move on to paragraph strategies where those sentence strategies are taken as a given and used as a, a way to, to, to get a paragraph to work really well. So there is a huge amount of knowledge that you can gain as a teacher. There's, there's a plethora of of you know professional learning that you can undertake in this space and huge huge amounts of reading so i encourage all teachers who, who don't know the best way of teaching writing that there, there is stuff out there to, to use yeah great point there and, and i think if they are able to, to kind of just slow things down a bit that's probably a, a good start you know and and just really master that that sentence level pieces of writing that way our students when they do move on and, and even if you look at the actual curriculum we're we're asking a lot of our students to do more than they're required to do anyway. Mm, yeah, exactly. So I think depending on your jurisdiction, you can really you can go slower to go faster in some ways because if you spend some really key time on building sentence level proficiency and helping students to know what a sentence is, so they don't just write a text full of fragments or run-ons, it, it creates a much um, better opportunity for everyone to be able to um, express themselves in a clear way when when they're coming to the the written form, which is very different to the oral form. Yes, yes. All right, next one. Dear Dr. Swain, what sorts of things should I be looking for when choosing a spelling program? So let's take forms mm. out of it. So we can't choose um, forms at all. So <laughs> just, you know, so it could, because a lot of schools, they like, to, I, I don't know what the, the reason is, but they like to pay for programs. Yeah, they do. They do. And so what... what and there's some really dodgy ones out there. I'm not going to name names, yeah. but to be honest, if you are concerned, you can always contact me and I'm happy to speak to you privately about it. But essentially, you really need a solid scope and sequence. There are a lot of programs out there that try and teach things that don't make sense and that potentially that you're teaching graphemes that aren't really graphemes. Lynn Stone has this great bit of work that she's been sharing through conferences and, and blog posts about sort of fake graphemes. And it creates this thing with students where they have like spelling choice hell and they don't know which spelling choice to use because they've been told too many potential options and, and some of them don't reflect reality in some ways. 
So the other thing you need to think about as well is, you know, does the sequence work in terms of giving students enough practice and enough opportunity for review? I think some programs will just plow through things and not have that consolidation and not have that opportunity for daily and weekly and monthly review. So if, if you're not seeing a review element to your program, you're just sort of teaching a list of words and then moving on. That's a big red flag saying that it's probably not consolidating your students' abilities. I think some programs as well rely on the students just memorizing a list of words for the week and then just getting tested at the end of the week. And that's not how a good, that's not how good teaching works. That's also not how a good spelling program works because students need to have that daily practice and ideally facilitated by the teacher so that the teacher's aware of how that practice is going. Shouldn't outsource the teaching of spelling to parents or to tutors and things like that because it's not equitable and it also is not a good use of resources as well. The last thing I'd say is that look for good lesson plans and materials that are ready to use. Some programs will have them step by step. I was going to mention forms here, but Brennan's told me that I can't. So <laughs> lesson plans, I think, are really helpful, but also, you know, PowerPoint slides or example lists of words or other materials that students can work with, because you don't want to be creating those on a daily basis if you put your time and energy into learning how a new program works. I think if a program is set up properly and if it's a properly set out curriculum of work, then it should have good materials that drive the, the daily sort of practice and teachers should have the access to the training that help them learn how to use those materials best. Yeah, some great advice there. And I think it's it's a question that does pop up a lot about the spelling programs. And I think because the reason why teachers will go to a spelling program is because they don't actually have the required knowledge themselves you know, to lead something. And so they want to yeah, just just kind of yeah, choose something else which can guide them, which can be really mm. effective if they choose the right thing. So yeah, that, that question definitely comes up a lot. Mm. Um, for this next part, uh, I've called it this or that. So I'm going to give you a whole bunch of um, scenarios where I want you to choose one thing or the other, and then you can justify why you've chosen that, that one over the other. Um, I'll try and give you quick answers as well so you can probe me if you yeah. think I've been too flippant. <laughs> yeah. All right. The first one is, and I know what your answer is going to be on a few of these, but a couple of them <laughs> might be yeah, a bit more interesting. So the first one here is whole class instruction or rotational groups. Look, I think if you can get whole class instruction working really well and every teacher has the opportunity to do that because that should be the core of our craft then definitely whole class instruction. Why? Because the more time that students spend with the expert in the room on that particular skill or body of knowledge, the better. You can. Some people have this amazing ability to get group work to work really well or to have these rotations that are engaging and they think of different activities every single day and I applaud them for getting that all to work. I just don't see the, the, the benefit in the classrooms that I visit because of the amount of time that's potentially wasted. And there's a lot of unsupervised, undirected sort of time where students are playing a game that doesn't really have a lot of pedagogical value, not the teacher's fault, because it's actually really hard to think of things that have value that students can do by themselves. So because of that, I think getting a whole class instruction to work best is really important. And also knowing that differentiation can actually be built into your whole class instruction. It's all about having optional extensions and additional supports that you build in through your instruction. So while students are working through a task that you've given them or they're all spelling a word or doing a sentence dictation, you go to those students who need your extra support and give them the prompts or give them the, the leg up or say, you know, everyone is working towards doing these three questions and there's four questions at the bottom that are extensions. So it's not that extension and differentiation isn't possible. It definitely is possible. And in fact, as in the whole class environment, it's a lot easier to monitor, especially when you're using things like mini whiteboards and um, pair shares and cold calling and things like that. 
All right, but and this kind of touches on my next one actually, and I didn't tell you this mm. one before, but I'll, I'll be. Oh, bonus one. Yeah, this is a bonus one. All right, so you're borrowing Hollingsworth's EDI or Archer and Hughes's EI or Engelman's DI. Oh, controversial. Which one would I yes. put my allegiance to? Look, if people aren't familiar, these are all sort of originally sort of the direct instruction approaches is, is what Engelman's created. So all, all the other ones are essentially offshoots of that way of thinking, coming at it from different ways. Mm-hmm. And they've got all got pros and cons. In terms of a new teacher getting their head around this space, you can't look past the simplicity and the elegance of EDI, I think. There are things that Anita Archer has to offer and Archer and Hughes' EI is very good as well, and explicit instruction. But I think EDI has a real simple way that they try and explain complicated things and it gives you a real nice scaffold and structure that you can use straight away in your teaching there's also just really handy tips littered throughout their book that you can either read or you can listen to the audiobook which is also a very good listen and for me that that actually immediately changed the way that i thought about instruction when i first read that book so i'd have to say that Engelman though is the original so if you want to look at the original source that's the original so hard to choose but you know i'm leaning towards edi in this case yeah, and, and you know, the way I've kind of looked at these different models is that you've, you've kind of got Rosenstein's principles like as the, the, the principles that are, are on top of all of Explain these. all of them. Yeah. yeah, and then, you know, you look at Engelman's and it's probably got more scaffolded support for teachers, you know, because it is literally scripted and it's got the whole curriculum and scope and sequence and everything as a part of it. And so if you're looking at like the amount of support for teachers, that's got the most amount of support. Certainly. And, yeah. and, and some some programs are, are really, you can't really look past them in terms of teaching things really well. So a lot of schools in Victoria and other states have had a lot of success with spelling mastery, for instance. So that's been one of those programs that just do that very, very well and has been perfected over many years. Um, I think if your school is not such a big fan of scripting, because scripting isn't necessary to implement the science of learning, but it, as you said, it's a, it's a helpful scaffold. If scripting is not your thing, then EDI might be a better solution because it is more teacher driven and it's you have to create your own resources still. But it's the the rationale behind it, I think, which you really get from EDI. Yeah, and it's just so practical. I think that's what makes it appealing for teachers because you know a lot of the times when you engage with this professional learning, it's very theory heavy, and so then mm. you you end up leaving it. And and I get a lot of teachers feeling like this from Rosenshine's where it's mm. still a bit too abstract for them to know how to exactly apply it into the classroom where whereas you know with edi you've got these things which you know are are very practical and you can any teacher can use it straight away yeah exactly all right next one is rows versus flexible seating so simple one in some ways i don't think rows are necessarily what you need to do you can do the, the principle I have is that you want every student to be able to see you and hear you without having to turn their body or to look around different objects and avoid things that are potentially distracting. So keeping the environment clean and neat and you know free of extraneous um, displays or sounds or things like that, really important. It doesn't have to be a row. I used to do clusters that were all facing the same way. So that essentially rows with spaces between them and with people in partners so that they had a partner, but they also had lots of space where I could move around the room easily. So some people have an aversion to rows. So you can have it more like a U shape if that's more to your liking, as long as everyone can see the teacher, see the instructional material and hear at the same time. I think the problem with flexible seating in some ways is that, um, and adults will know this themselves, like we just can't trust these 
trust ourselves to, to focus if, if we're given the option to keep changing things. Think about how easy it is for parents, you know, to procrastinate when they're trying to do something at home. You know, kids coming in, they distract you, things are moving around. Like, oh, you need to go and sit down and finish this set of bills or, you know, whatever task you're trying to do. Oh, something else has happened. My phone's gone off. So I'm just going to go and, and put the washing on or something like that. So if students learn that the learning space is an opportunity to just distract yourself because they're constantly changing locations, I think it sets up an expectation where if you're finding something hard, you can get up and move around. I think that's a bit of a problem because it doesn't build that internal regulation of persisting when things are difficult. Not to say you have to have kids sitting down for an extraneous amounts of time, but you you obviously intersperse lots of active movement and things as well, especially with younger kids. But flexible seating, I think, has a problem because teachers then don't have any sense of expectations around what it means to be focused and what it means to be engaged in the learning. If, teach, if students can literally pick up a beanbag in the middle of your lesson and walk across the room and move it, that's a big distraction for other kids. And that's only going to interrupt the flow of your lesson, which means there's less time for learning and less time for play if you you know get through your learning you've got more time for play at the other end so i think that's always a consideration yeah i remember towards the end of my career as a high school teacher and and having these year seven students coming in and they couldn't sit down you know for a mm. period and i was thinking like why can't these year seven kids sit down and then when i right. went went into you know becoming a primary teacher and then I saw, you know, this flexible seating thing. I was like, ah, oh, that's why this flexible seating. They've never had to sit down. Before. They haven't yeah. had to sit down for a sustained period of time. Yeah. yeah so, I, I, you know, I 100% agree with you that, yeah, we've got to, and it doesn't have to be all day. But I think it, just, no. it needs and to be it's good to mix it up, and it, exactly. And yeah. you, you know, there's time, there's space for time on the floor, there's space for time at the desk, there's space for time outside. As long as the expectation is that when the learning is happening, when the explicit teaching is happening, that everyone is focused and everyone's learning. Because if they're not, if they're off task, if they're not facing the right way, if they're distracted by someone else who's talking, it just means that that's an opportunity lost. And we know that working memory is already so fragile. There's only, you know, depending on your definition, three to six things you can hold in your working memory at any one time. If one of those things is, oh, I like the feel of this beanbag, or I wonder what it's like to sit over the other side of the room, then, you know, you've lost that opportunity to learn something that's probably quite fundamental. Yeah. Okay. Next one. So this one is looking at whether you create booklets, mm. whether you create PowerPoints, and I'm going to throw in another one here, mm. whether you you come in without having created any resources. so And just do yeah. whiteboard and, yes. and things like that, whiteboard. anchor charts. Yeah. Look, um, people will know from the kinds of resources I produce that I am a fan of PowerPoint. I think PowerPoint is helpful because it allows you to make things appear and make things disappear in less than a second. I think that has a real importance, especially in the primary years where you want to model different strategies you want to bring images immediately into attention and then get them to disappear as well to, to sort of control the flow of the lesson i think if you relied on having to draw all those images i think that would be probably pretty problematic um and also just not very accurate you know, the teacher's ability to draw those images that might be helpful to the student's comprehension of the, the topic um is probably a bit of a, a problem and we, we shouldn't be paid i think to to spend time drawing for a, a long period i do a lot of drawing in my teaching but it's only for things that actually lend themselves to doing that i'm not going to draw in replacement of my powerpoint slides which show you know the animals the the locations 
the the number concepts that I'm trying to show as well. I think having hands-on materials is important as well and, and they have a place and concrete things that you can hold. But the beauty of PowerPoint is that you can create an anchor for yourself as a teacher that you use to keep the flow of the lesson going. It's hard to remember everything. So the PowerPoint in some ways can create that anchor. I know that a lot of people are not into PowerPoint in the science of learning space at the moment. And I'm, you know, I'm interested to, to learn more about that perspective. But I think it, it comes from a place of knowing that having a linear sequence sometimes isn't as helpful. And you might want to have something more like OneNote where you're scrolling around a screen and drawing things and annotating um, you know, digitally on the screen so people can see. So I think in certain secondary subjects, that certainly lends itself better. But um, the booklets one is another one. I think in certain areas, like maybe literature, when you're studying a text, it does lend itself well to a booklet or, you know, everyone having a class text that they're then using and, and maybe something sitting by side by side, like either a sheet or a booklet. Um, the beauty of a booklet is that it's a whole lot of sheets tied together then to get all mixed up because when you have lots of sheets that are produced, the problem is that students can't keep them all organized. So the booklet is, I guess, the intention behind that is that it's bound and it's, it's used in that sort of sequence. Um, I think... Go booklets if you know that it's text heavy and that there's lots of opportunities to consolidate the reading and writing that you're doing or the the, the problems that you're solving in the, the text. But if you're worried about the environment, do PowerPoint because there's a lot of stuff that you can do that students don't actually have to have a physical copy of um, that they can then um, write um, notes or they can produce artifacts in their workbooks as well. And there is going to be a bit of printing because you can't have everything that's not on paper, but um, booklets are certainly very paper heavy as well. So that's something to consider. So I've given you like a this and that answer rather than a this or that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and look, I think it's it's important. You've got to be you know, measured in your responses. And like one of the other things I thought about like with the booklets, because I've been like you as well, um, you know, create a lot of PowerPoints and seen a lot of value in that. One of the things I have found with them is that they can be really time-consuming. You know, oh, like once, yeah. once you do start to kind of really get into that nitty-gritty side of like making sure that you're using the correct font, putting things in the right places, getting your icons, and you want yeah, that consistency. consistency. It takes a long it time. It does. And, um, you know, so the, the thing I kind of also thought about like with the booklets is that it also allows um, students who are absent or, you know, they're missing lessons or, you know, if you need to kind of look back on things that have happened in, in previous lessons, you can quickly flick through, you know, by yourself or um, complete things that you haven't done uh, that you missed out on. Um, so that's another advantage. But, yeah, I do get your point, you know, about the environment and, and you are uh, producing a lot of lot of these booklets. And, and because they're going to be writing in them, it's not like you can just reuse them the next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think as well, if you've got a primary school, um, you know, a cohort that you're working with, um, whether they've got the um, independence in their study abilities to actually go back and review things independently. I think that's probably something that you probably need to start developing early if you want them to be able to do that and look back through booklets in a meaningful way. Um, I think it's well-intentioned for students to have that opportunity to go back and do it. But um, I don't know if the research is strong enough in that early space, certainly with more secondary and adult learners, like it makes sense. Um, and which is why textbooks are so handy because you, they've got exercises, they've got the text there, they've got questions. Um, it's a resource and it's a reference at the same time. Um, but uh, in a primary sort of space, I don't know whether every student would make use of that very well. So you might have a huge 100 page booklet for every single student multiplied by, you know, 60 kids in the year level. That's a lot of paper. Yeah. Whether each page is sort of worth printing, I think is another thing. And I do think that booklets potentially take a long time to create because to make a booklet look good yeah. and to look 
clean and neat is potentially harder than PowerPoint. Um, Word is one of those really tricky software platforms to actually do what you wanted to do, especially on a grand scale. Like anyone who's edited like a manuscript or tried to get like a, um, a long piece of writing work well, like a thesis, it's really hard to wrangle and it's hard to make things work. And you change one thing and suddenly five pages are affected and you have to go back and change things or you change the page reference and you have to go back and fix it. Like it, it's a big job. Yeah. So I don't think there's necessarily a time saving with making booklets. Yeah. I think it would be more the attention saving of, you know, um, having a reference there that students use. So if you can justify it for that reason, I think there is a good argument for booklets, but I don't think it's a time saver from a preparation point of view. Yeah, good point. All right. Next part, um, and we're now kind of moving into um, the current space of, of where you're at in uh, initial teacher education. And I just had a mm -hmm. question about like, you know, having now experienced life in the classroom um, and now working with beginning teachers, what do you see working and what do you see we need to improve um, in that sort of space? I think I'm really lucky um, to be um within a university that's taking a pretty strong move in the direction of implementing the science of learning under the, the Dean Joanna Barbusis and um, with my colleagues in the solar lab, such as Pamela Snow, Tanya Seri and Tessa Weedman, I think we've got a great team assembling as well as um, academics in other areas who are passionate about this work and are passionate about improving teacher education. So I think one of the biggest priorities to get things working well is to basically fully impaired the knowledge that exists outside of the education faculties at the moment. So to really bring in the sciences of learning, sciences of reading and making and sciences of maths as well, and making that a, a real focus of what students get access to when they're learning how to be a teacher. I think for too long, it's been something that's almost like a hidden secret of like how language actually works or how reading actually develops and, and how the brain learns. I think that's been something that's not um, part of the teacher's awareness when they're training to become a teacher. I think that's something that we can really rectify. And there's good work in this space to try and do that. And I look forward to more universities um, taking a step forward in that direction. Um, I think it's important to also bring the science together with the art of learning and teaching. Yeah. There's a there's an acknowledgement that, you know, there's not an empirical research study to determine every single thing that you do as a teacher. It's just not possible. So there's always going to be a certain amount of craft and uh, art in, in, in what we do. And I think that that's the human element that I so um, hold dear as a teacher as well. So learning, I guess, how to marry the, the fundamentals and the ideas, the non-negotiables that come from the hard science and, and marry that with the, um, the nuances and the complications and the, the messiness of real classrooms with real kids, I think is the really fun work that's going to happen in the next few years of, of how we do this really meaningfully and in a way that um, does reflect real classrooms. So having a strong connection, I think, between the university and the schools um, is really vital. And, I, and that's certainly the plan for Latrobe to continue building those partnerships and make that connection even stronger through placements and, and research um, and other sorts of things. I think as well, as if we get the fundamentals right and if we get those foundations right that at the moment have been neglected for a long time, probably because of the excesses of some of the movements of the last 20 of the 20th century about what's important in education. I think those fundamentals will put us in good stead to then open up the conversation so that we can talk about things like critical and creative thinking and we can talk about the application of knowledge for the solving of new problems and all the all the 21st century sort of skills that have been touted as being the answer actually becomes the next part of the conversation if you get the fundamentals right. So we, we give an, a great education to all students because the teachers know how to do it so that they've got the, the 
um, foundations right in the reading, the writing, the mathematics and the other learning areas so that they can actually do a lot of cool stuff with their literacy and, and maths skills. I think that's what would be really exciting when some of those foundations become less of a, a game of chance and more of a given, because then we can talk about what can education be used for, which is what most education academics want to talk about, is that what's the power of education? Yeah. For too long, I think people have thought that you can just put the cart before the horse and say, well, we want it to be about curiosity and creativity. So we'll teach that. When in fact, to get there, you need to make sure that equitably there's the foundations are set really well. But I see a pretty bright future if we continue on this path and we make the case for getting the foundations and the fundamentals right so that we can move to all the higher order sort of learning. And I think the university sector has a big role in that, but the, the schools on the ground, the work that you and the teachers on the ground do um, is vital because that's where all of these great ideas will come to fruition. Yeah, and, you know, you hear a lot about, you know, going back to basics, but I don't think it's so much going back to basics, but it's just get no. the basics right first and then we can do these other exciting things that you're talking about. Exactly. Get those foundations set so that you actually can build a house on something sturdy. Mm. Um, look, the... The way that I kind of got in contact with you was uh, initially through ThinkBoard Educators and, and, you know, it's such a, a mm. great organisation. I remember when I first came across it, I, I can't remember what I um, was Googling, but I was Googling something and, <laughs> and then I was like, ThinkBoard Educators, you know, this sounds like... What's this, this thing? Yeah, yeah, this sounds like something I would be interested in. And then, you know, I got reading and then, you know, set, I saw some of the, the webinars that you had on. I was like, you know, this is amazing, you know, and this is exactly where we want to be heading. Um, you know, mm. as educators, it, this is what we need. And so, you know, firstly, on behalf of all the educators out there that have engaged with <laughs> ThinkPort Educators, thank you for, uh, you know, creating it. And, um, you know, it's been a real pleasure to, to be involved, um, you know, in, in my small little way as well. But um, oh, and in, in a substantial way, I think, Brendan, you're underselling yourself there, your role in the mentor program and the webinars that you've put on, I think are really powerful. So thank you as well. Um, yeah, it's it's lovely to be able to work with you in this forum. Yeah, and and so you know, how did it first come about? So um, the the short version is um, like most teachers and other specialists working in education, I um, basically found a, a crew of people who were passionate about the importance of teaching literacy and other learning areas really well and frustrated that the system wasn't sort of making that easy, um, potentially frustrated at the school level, but maybe at the system level, some people at the university level as well. And we essentially just started meeting together. And um, because COVID happened about you know, three or four months into those meetings, we suddenly went online and our reach and our ability to meet more people and to feature more speakers just became a lot more amplified. So we grew from a group of 30 or 40 teachers in and educators in Melbourne to, you know, 16,000 members across the country now and um, with some global reach in there as well. So the the whole mission of Think Ford Educators is to allow teachers to get access to high quality and free or very low cost um, professional learning, um, professional networking and professional guidance. And I think um, we do that in the programs and the resources that we make available for teachers. So I've been always blown away by how things have, have progressed and how they've moved along. And I'm always so touched when people like yourself reach out and say that it's been meaningful and it's been helpful for your journey. Um, that's all it's meant to do is to help good people um, connect with good um, evidence and good research and um, help spread that to their colleagues um, and help you know, drive their own change journeys in, in whatever setting that they work in. So um, that's what I've been proud to oversee and to and to be a part of that that movement of different organisations over the last few years. And so where to next for Think Forward Educators? 
So um, we are a charity, we're registered and we've got an opportunity to um, extend our reach further. I think it's an exciting stage that we're at where we um, are chugging along and we're producing more professional learning opportunities and mentor programs and things like that. Um, but it's an exciting stage now where things um, potentially are going to ramp up a lot um, and we've got an opportunity to work more directly with schools in person and to help more schools connect with the science of learning and um, the science of teaching. So um, watch this space. More to announce later in the year, I hope. Um, but yeah, certainly um, opportunities for growth this year is, is, is definitely on the cards. Sounds really exciting, uh, Nathaniel. And, and look, I know we're, uh, we're getting towards the end of our conversation, but I've, I've really enjoyed chatting to you as I always do. Um, you too, Brian. Yeah, but so last question here. So what other bits of knowledge do you feel more teachers need to have or what resources would you recommend? Look, I, th I feel like um, the more I think about it, teachers need a bit of a crash course in linguistics. They need an opportunity to actually sort of examine language and how it works and how to break it down so that when they're looking at a task like writing an essay or understanding a fiction text or, you know, even analysing conversation discourse and things like that, like how do you actually break things down? I think, um, you know, watch that space. I think there's more resources coming and there's there's certainly some good things out there like Lynn Stone's Language for Life that give a bit of a crash course crash course in linguistics. Flowing into that is the importance of um, all using that information for writing. So you can't look past things like the writing revolution to get you started as a school. There's excellent training um, as well as the book, um, audio book that, that drive all of that work, the Hockman, Hockman method. Um, so definitely that. But also the professional learning about um, the knowledge rich curriculum stuff is really vital as well. So I think Edie Hirsch's work is probably the most underrated and powerful sort of bit of work of the late um, 20th and um, early 21st century. And I think um, there's a real opportunity to think differently about how we teach reading and writing because of the nature of that work and just how fundamental knowledge and concepts are to um, helping students become proficient readers and writers. Um, as well as that, I think, you know, if you haven't looked at cognitive load theory and looked at the Australian grown work by um, John Sweller, I think it's a really important area to look at. Greg Ashman's PhD in this area is also really important. And his blog, um, Filling the Pale, is an excellent introduction for so many different topics. Um, it's just fantastic bite-sized PD, but also an opportunity to get inside the head of a very um, well-accomplished and um strong-minded educator, I think. Um, and then the last little plug I'll do is for um, good old Shane Pearson and the forms, a curriculum, because if you want to learn about the structure of English phonology, morphology, um, etymology, semantics, and orthography, I missed one, sorry, then get into forms because you not only learn how to teach it, you actually learn how to understand it yourself as, a, as an educator. And it's full of ready-to-teach um, lessons that will actually make you a better speller and a better writer um, and a better reader as a result. So um, free resource available to schools, F to six or P to six or K to six, depending on your state. Um, and a really great opportunity to learn more about um, the, the beauty and the um, fascinating history of the English language. Great, great uh, resources there. And, and I like how, you, how you've um, you know, given a bit of a plug to, to forms because as you mentioned before, it is for free. And so the more mm. schools and teachers that are able to engage with it, the better um, because, yeah, it, it's been a lot of time and effort and a lot of, uh, you know, research supports what has actually been put into it's it. It underpins it. And I think, you know, future evaluations are definitely on the cards um, because it is a really good 
really good curriculum and I think it deserves more attention. Um, but, you know, in teaching in my own classroom, I know that it's it's underpinned by the sciences of learning and reading and it um, it's just really makes it easy to teach it because it's so well planned out and you don't have to come up with a lesson every day. It's got the lesson there for you to ready to adapt and to to use. And the, the, the daily review that's embedded is just so powerful. Yeah, great. Well, Nathaniel, thanks again. Uh, it's been a pleasure and I look forward to, to catching up with you soon. You too, Brennan. Thanks for having me today. I love digging into people's stories about how they ended up involved in education. And Nathaniel certainly had a unique path into the classroom via dance, Japanese and speech pathology. I'm sure that after listening to this episode that you would agree that Nathaniel's knowledge base is incredible. However, it's not by accident. I've had the pleasure of getting to know this remarkable man on a personal level and his dedication and work ethic is second to none. My key takeaways from this episode. For those feeling a bit demoralized in your job at the moment, Nathaniel reminded us of the magical moments that we can experience as teachers when the light bulbs go off for kids and it doesn't happen in any other profession. However, he also emphasized how intense teaching is compared to other professions. He highlighted certain teaching approaches that work for nearly everyone Things like guided practice, bulletproof definitions and explanations, step-by-step processes, checking for understanding, daily reviews, reflections at the end of each lesson, and the pedagogical content knowledge. While teaching students one-on-one would be ideal for being able to provide targeted support, there are some benefits of learning with a group of people, such as the social and intellectual benefits of having other people's perspectives and learning about how other people see things. We need to ensure that we know that our instruction is supporting all students and understand what our data is actually telling us. At the foundation level, we really need to go hard on phonemic awareness, phonics and handwriting. Explicit Direct Instruction, or EDI, provides a great scaffold for teachers to follow. It's not so much about sitting in rows, but ensuring that distractions are limited and everyone can hear and see the teacher. We also want to move away from flexible seating because we want to try and build up their internal regulation of persisting when things are difficult. PowerPoints are great for creating an anchor for yourself as a teacher, and while booklets can work, they can still be just as time-consuming to create and won't necessarily be used properly. He finished with reflecting on the need for teachers to take a crash course in linguistics. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, part B of this series with Nathaniel features teachers from a couple of different schools, we hear about their current situation and challenges before providing some advice around possible next steps. However, that's it from me for today. And as always, stay curious, keep learning and teach with purpose. Bye for now.